0: So last week we covered Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, and just as a very brief reminder before we continue on, we defined faith, or I should say the writer defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and we looked to Jesus Christ, His life. To to see the author and finisher of our faith because Jesus fulfills that very definition of faith. If faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, in the person of Jesus Christ came, you know, remember, we define substance as something that you can perceive with your senses. We can hear, we can see, we can feel, we can touch, we can smell. Jesus was all of those things. He was enfleshed, and the world experienced Him, and we still experience Him today by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so He is the substance of things hoped for, and also He's the evidence of things not seen. Remember what Jesus said, when you've seen Me, you've seen who? The Father. So Jesus Christ in Himself was the evidence of what had never been seen. Because no one can see the Father and live, we're told in Holy Scripture. But in Jesus Christ, when you've seen Jesus, you have seen Him. His character, His virtues. You have experienced Him and we still experience Him today. And so our faith, as we talked about last week... It is all about, and there is no other way but by the experience of the fellowship with God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's how we have come into the faith at our baptism. That is how we grow in our faith to maturity over time is by the continued fellowship walk that we have with the one who is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so now we come to chapter 12. And again, remember, there are no chapters in the epistle. That's why you see the word therefore beginning chapter 12. In other words, we've defined faith. We saw examples of people of the faith that experienced God and continued to experience God to the growth of their faith. And they're a testimony to us. And we have that blessed word therefore, since all of these things. Who has Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2? Yes, please. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so you see the scene being painted to us here again. The belief is that whoever wrote Hebrews is writing the very teachings of St. Paul. Someone that was with him for an extended amount of time. And remember, Saint Paul utilizes this very example. He was very much—he very much enjoyed athletic competition and looking at it. He had a lot of respect for athletes and the self-control that he saw in those athletes that were pursuing whatever trophy or prize that they were trying to pursue. And here again, we have that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by, by so great a cloud of witnesses, okay, who, who's the cloud of witnesses? He's referring to saints and previously. In the previous chapter, which were all of the old covenant, that we were told did not come into the fullness. It was before the fullness had come. Remember, we talked about last week that everything in time converges upon the incarnation. And there is the fullness presented to us. Right? So these are the ones, the cloud of witnesses being mentioned here. And it's not that it doesn't apply to the saints now. All the saints in heaven. But the cloud of witnesses specific to what he's saying is the one I just went through in chapter 11, in, the, in the previous chapter for you. Moses, Abraham, all of the ones mentioned there. Since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, what are they witnessing? They're witnessing, he's giving the idea of a coliseum. The race that's going on. Okay? The witnesses are those in the crowd cheering on the athletes. Who are the athletes? We are. are. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. I want you to remember something about the saints that are cheering us on. Be it the ones from the old covenant that are being mentioned here in the beginning of Hebrews 12, but also those today. There's something very interesting about every one of this cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on, and it's this. They're retired athletes. Every one of them has run the race set before them. All of those who are cheering us on have experienced, just like Jesus Christ experienced all of our humanity, These witnesses, these saints, have experienced all of the hardships of being human and coming to God. They've experienced all the temptations. They've experienced all the weaknesses of their flesh. They've experienced what it really means to have self-control and turn yourself to God. These are the ones that have made it, received the trophy... And are looking upon us as we are now the ones that are running the race. Cheering us on. And cheering us on also by their intercessions. Now to this race. How shall we run the race? Because this is what's being presented to us. First of all it says, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin that entangles us. You ever seen runners these days in a marathon? Have you ever seen that? Pictures of them or actually seen them run? What do they wear? As little as possible. Boy, these days, ain't that the truth? (laughs) But it is the truth. They wear precious little upon their bodies. Okay? And not only are they wearing precious little, is the material lightweight or heavy? It's It's light. They've got a long distance to go, don't they? Not only that, the material that they wear for the race, it is a type of material, it's not only light, but it saps away moisture from the body, keeping it off of the body so that the body remains cool, or cooler, I should say, as if they wore something that was very thick, right, that would keep the moisture and the sweat on the body. It's actually designed very good for runners. So they wear the lightest materials possible to run the marathon of a race that they have to run. Have you ever seen any runner? Let me put it this way: Have you ever seen any runner in their right mind no. trying to run in the right <laughs> mind? Period. <laughs> okay, it's Sunday school over. Let's go. <laughs> in the right mind. <laughs> she's paying attention there are times that I wonder the same thing but have you, have you ever seen any runner in their right mind carrying upon themselves a knapsack of bricks on their back no. No. unless rid- they're in the middle or, or unless they're absolutely out of their minds trying to run this race that's exactly right and yet ask yourself this question Are you running the race with a knapsack of bricks on your back? Are we not casting aside earthly cares? Are we not casting aside uh, and, and letting God be our victory over the sin that so easily entangles us in this marathon that we have to run? Because if we're all honest, we all know that when we're pursuing anything for our contentment other than the Lord our God, I'm not talking about being faithful in life. We all have to work. Unless a man works, he doesn't eat. So we need to be faithful in our jobs and in our careers in the right framework. Never for the pursuit of contentment by the money that the job brings or the status that the the job brings about, right? So if we're all honest, when we pursue contentment outside of God or if we so willingly love our sins so much which we all do in certain areas of our soul that's god we're still a work in progress it's okay to say that is it not feel like the spiritual life when we're pursuing other things or living in our sins is like running through a swamp of mud rather than being light huh light and running and being able to endure the marathon in order to gain the prize at the other end. That's why I know Subdeacon Peter loves to bring about this hymn in the Eastern Rite, and I do too, especially in a, in a moment like this when it really applies so well. In the Eastern Rite Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom and also the Liturgy of St. Basil, there's a point where we are preparing uh, to go up to the altar and where the, the, the bread and wine will be consecrated. So just prior to the canon, like we sing the prefaces, there is what is called the cherubic hymn. And the cherubic hymn speaks to this very thing because the very thing that we sing is, let us all lay aside all earthly care so that we may receive the King of all. Think about this. If I approach God... With my hands and my arms absolutely full of the things of earth that are non-eternal, the cares of this world, my pursuit of them, or the sins that I tend to love more than I love God and I come to God, how much room is there to put anything of Himself in my hands? That's the image so that cherubic hymn when the eastern rite approaches the altar basically tells us let us right now if we haven't yet let us lay aside all earthly care because once we do that we've got emptiness here and truly we approach God in our emptiness and he becomes our everything and he fills it does that make sense And that's what we're being told here. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles us. The second thing that the writer says is not only shall we lay aside every weight and the sin, but we are also to run the race with endurance. We have to always keep our mind on reality. And even though we don't know if we have another breath left, we really don't. But even though we we know that's true about our mortality, we run a race with endurance. We are not running a wind sprint. This race is to be lived on a day-to-day basis, one day at a time, considered a marathon, and always in that one day, living with oil in our lamp, casting aside all earthly care, making sure the oil of the Holy Spirit is welling up within us so that whenever our bridegroom calls us home or comes to us, The lamp is lit. But we run the race with endurance. The third thing the writer mentions is not only this, we run this race looking to Jesus Christ. And I love this word looking. It has everything to do with the gaze of the whole being. Looking to Jesus Christ. The best analogy I come to is again always one of my favorite scriptures on things like uh, subjects like this. And that is when Jesus comes to the to Peter in, in the boat and invites Peter out of the boat to walk on the water with him. We are told that Peter says, "Lord, if it's you, invite me to come out on the water with you." Really the tempest is what he said. Come out on this tempest with you. Jesus invites him to come. And Peter sets his gaze, his look, he's looking to Jesus Christ. Okay? The gaze of his entire being is on Christ. And as it was, he steps out of the boat. And because his gaze is set upon Jesus Christ, where is he? He's brought above the tempest and the storm exactly where Jesus is and does not sink into the waters. But then what are we told? Peter, like all of us, casts his gaze on earthly cares. He feared for his life because he took his gaze, his look. He took it off our Lord Jesus Christ and placed it upon that which could devour him. And what happened? We're told that when he cast his gaze onto that rather than Christ, he sunk down. Not where Christ was, but where the tempest of the life was. But then Jesus even still comes and rescues him and brings him up and brings him back into the boat. This is what it's saying. Looking to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, casting the gaze of our whole being, the focus of our entire existence. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We talked about that last week. He begins it, He finishes it. We remain in Him. That's our job. We keep our gaze upon Him. He begins, He's the faithful one to finish it, not us. We stay yoked to Him as He invites Looking unto Jesus, are the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. Endured the cross. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Last Wednesday night we talked about this aspect where it says, Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. Remember, the writer is talking about an endurance our endurance, we have a cross, we have a crucible, He's likening it to a race. And He says, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. My friends, the only way for us to run the race looking unto Jesus and keeping our eyes fixed on Him, the only way by grace that this is possible is to do as He did. Our Lord Jesus Christ saw through the cross for the joy that was on the other side. He knew that if I endure this, He knew that two things would happen. He knew that number one, He would be positioned in the heavenlies to stand between man and God and write salvation in the hearts of mankind to all who would come into Him. For that joy of being able to do that, your God in Jesus Christ endured such great suffering of the cross. And the second joy that he had is that joy of the sharing of himself in salvation. Do you not know that our Lord Jesus Christ saw through the cross, and he saw that through that cross it would enable him once again to bring mankind back into union with the Holy Trinity, the Holy Trinity that is mankind's life. And salvation and absolute contentment and joy. That's where it is. And so for Christ's joy to do those things as your God, He endured the cross. So how is it that we can take something from that and find the joy in the crucible of this life, in the cross that this life is? Because this cross is a constant daily walk of passing through the death to our sinful nature into the life of the very nature of Christ partaking in the nature of the divine holy trinity. How do we find joy? We look and keep our eyes focused on the one who through joy passed through it And secondly, we look at the joy that awaits us on the other side. All of the blessings. And I, I say on the other side, you need to understand, the other side is twofold. It is the next day in our life. And it is also eternity with Christ. Because every moment that we endure this crucible, giving ourselves over with those empty hands we described, and God fills our life with Himself, every day we do that, the next day has more joy. More contentment, more peace, because we're maturing in our faith. Our living existence as sons and daughters of the living God, you see. And so we keep our eyes on the prize. Beyond this day, if I offer you, O God, my sin, if I offer you, O God, my distractions of all the things that I have chosen to pursue above you, I know what you offer back. And through that dying to self, I live the next day in that greater contentment and joy. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. Now he presents another aspect of God to us from Hebrews twelve three through 11. Who has that? Bruce, is that you? <coughs>
1: For consider him who endureth such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and discourages every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and life, and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained
0: by it. Here we have the fatherhood of God talked about differently than we've seen before. Because we have this idea of running the race, keeping our eyes fixed on Him. We always talk about the grace that God gives. But now the writer says, Don't forget this part of the absolute and perfect loving fatherhood of your Father in Heaven. This is the God who in order to save you, disciplines you. He chastens you. He corrects you. He rebukes you sometimes. He said, and don't be, the whole encouragement is this. You need to see that God is going to do this. But don't be disheartened by it. Because He chastens you as sons. He chastens you out of His love. Receive it. Receive the correction of God. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. If you're enduring chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have been become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. This word chastening is an absolutely beautiful discipline word. Okay? It's a very specific word that's used here. Another, a beautiful parental word for all of us who are parents, as well as describing God our Father. And it's this any discipline or part of instruction or correction that has at its aim the increase of virtue in you. Why does God discipline us? Why does God rebuke us? Well, let me ask you a question, you folks who have been parents in here. Why have you disciplined your children? I'm not talking about those times, and you and I know it. Sometimes we discipline out of anger. We've made the mistake of misrepresenting God in the way that we've disciplined our children at times. But at the core of when that discipline that comes from us to our children has been healthy, why are you doing it? What's in your heart? Tell me. Yes. You love them and you want them to see what, what path they need to take. Yeah. You, yeah. you love them and you want them to change the behavior. To guide them on that good way. Right? Okay. That's one aspect. Sometimes when we discipline, what do we protect our kids from through that discipline?
1: Greater danger, my
0: How many times do little kids want to go and touch the oven? Because it's a pretty red color. (coughs) Right? If it's those electric ovens. And there are times we've had to discipline our children because if we... It would not be love not to. See, that's the key. It would not be love not to... This... I don't even want to go there, but this culture's idea of discipline today, it's actually non-existent. My little angel, my little angel. Your little angel keeps touching the hot stove. And what do they say? They say, well, they'll learn. Well, they'll learn. (laughs) Worse, they want to deny it. I'm going to tell you something. They even want to deny it. Well, isn't that cute? It's just like a kid. You know? I've seen those things. I'm not talking about a hot stove, but we know what we're talking about. It is the antithesis, the opposite of love. It is indifference not to discipline. See? We discipline our children because we want them to be on the right path and we want to guard them against the path that will send them into destruction. Okay? It is no different with our Heavenly Father except His is perfect. His is perfect. The writer continues giving example of earthly fathers... Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the fathers of spirits and to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness, our God chastens us rebukes us, disciplines us, because he wants to share himself with us. Because he wants us to become fully partakers in all that he is, in all of his virtues. Because he also knows that when his children grow in the blessed virtues that belong to his character and nature, that their lives are ordered and not disordered. Their lives are a blessed peace that the disorder keeps ruining for them. God didn't intend disorder in his creation. He ordered all things to share himself with us. You know, I remember even in coaching, when I used to coach high school basketball, every year, especially for the new players, as we would start going into practice and getting into the disciplines and... And so on, in basketball, I used to tell the players all the time, I'm going to raise my voice at you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to get your attention because I absolutely want you to become the best you can be. I said, you have no worries about how I feel about you if I'm getting after you. You have everything to worry about if you don't hear anything anymore. Because that means you're not cooperating with me and I can't do anything with you. Not because of what I want, because of what you've chosen. And all those players got that in their minds. It is the same concept. We ought to receive with joy the blessed discipline of the Father. Because in the discipline, it is a sign of the greatest love that our Father has for us. And so we lean into the discipline rather than running and hiding like Adam and Eve. We lean into the discipline and we receive his correction, his instruction, his call to come back to ourselves, to wake up from whatever slumber that we found ourselves in. And there we're healed. There we're healed. And we find all the things he wants to offer us available in our lives. Who has Hebrews 12 verses 12 through 15? Therefore, strengthen
1: the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that those slain may not be dislocated, but rather repeated. Pursue peace with all people, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God.
0: This is a beautiful turn here, because he's talking about the discipline of God coming to us for our correction and he turns automatically and says therefore now that I, okay now you're going to receive that blessed discipline of God therefore strengthen the hands that hang down where you're weak present yourself and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed in fact this comes as a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah, and I'm going to read you this, from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 6, where it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. I remember when Jesus quoted Isaiah about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news, to release the captives. And I could go on and on, but he proclaimed... It's the same idea of a prophecy of Jesus coming he gone through this whole fatherly discipline thing. Lean in that you might be healed because your God has come. So strengthen the feeble hands and the feeble knees. Come before Him because the season of your healing is at hand. The kingdom of God, it's like John the Baptist proclaimed. The kingdom of God has come near you. Now remember, again, I always have to remind us, he's talking to us, of course, but he's talking specifically to the Hebrew Christians that have departed the faith, denied Jesus Christ, so that they could be preserved from the persecution from the Romans and the Jews. And he's saying, receive your father's discipline. And your father is disciplining you to bring you back into the race. And what is the race set before you right now, Hebrew Christians? It is a difficult race where your life is on the line by your faith. So strengthen, bring your hands, strengthen the weak hands and your firm knees. Come on, come back to yourself. The the kingdom of God is at hand now and beyond such persecution. This is the cry that's ringing out uh, to the Hebrew Christians through the writer. And the cry comes here to us as well as to the Hebrew Christians. Particularly in a season like Lent. Where Lent really does put a more intensive focus on our discerning the voice of the Holy Spirit back in our lives. As to Lord, what are those areas that I still have not given over to you? What are those areas that I love more than you? All of the things so that we All Lent is given for is so that we might experience the resurrection in our lives come Pascha and beyond. So the same call comes to us. Don't forsake during Lent the rebuke of your loving Heavenly Father. The correction. The discipline, should you receive it, listen to it, accept it, lean into it. Because the other side of that is the healing hand that heals the wounded hand, that heals the feeble knees, that strengthens the human person to make it once again what God intended it to be. That's what we get from that call. The writer of Hebrews says at the end of that, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. I'm going to read to you Archbishop Dimitri on that because he quotes St. John Chrysostom as well as a few other of the saints, their fathers. He says, in order to finish the race before them, the Hebrew Christians are reminded that they must follow, or in the Greek, pursue, strive for the two things that perhaps, more than anything else, characterize the life in Christ. Peace and holiness. St. John Chrysostom. The Lord had given peacemaking as one of the primary virtues of His followers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Furthermore, He said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, but that which is the product of love first among Christians themselves, but also with all men, even one's enemy. That's from St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Holiness is that state of purity which brings the believer into communion with God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Take away the tears, and you remove with them purification. But apart from being purified, there is no one who is saved. No one whom the Lord calls blessed. No one who sees God. That's from St. Simeon. I can't tell you how many times. It really does happen more often than not. As people come to kneel before our Lord in the blessed sacrament of confession. Again, not confess to a priest. The priest brings you to Jesus. That they weep and there's almost an apologetic, I'm sorry I'm weeping. Some will say that to me. I said, don't you dare be sorry for your tears. Your tears are saving you. Your tears are the blessed honest response to the wonderful touch of the Holy Spirit that has exposed these things. Your tears are tears of true grief that I'm not who I am, I am created to be. The tears of sorrow and those blessed tears of sorrow wash us and purify us. And when they hear the blessed words of absolution, the tears turn to tears of joy and release. And relief. And that's what he's saying when St. Simeon says, Take away the tears and you remove from them purification. There is no shame in honest tears. In fact, it is by God that you have them, it is in blessed response to God that you are having those tears. And our Lord Jesus Christ, quite frankly, is baptizing you in a way, cleansing you through our own tears. Let us lay aside every earthly care. And let us, like Christ, who for the joy set before us, pass through the crucible of this life, and indeed even this Lent, that we might experience the next day's joy and eternal joy and contentment, growing in our lives. Let's stand.